0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Good morning. Uh, As you're uh, having a seat, go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 16 uh, we're going to focus on one uh, verse there, and then we're going to jump into Acts, and we're going to kind of just follow the flow of how the church began, and the, the goal of what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit of how Jesus grows the church, and uh, this is actually, in studying this, this is actually to comfort my heart and my soul, um, because we get questions a lot about church planning, and we get a varied uh, responses, you know, and so if you're here for the first time this morning and you're like, Who is this guy? Uh, my name is Casey, and I've been uh, one of the ministers here under a title called Church Planning Resident, uh, which means I've worked in different areas of the church, uh, one being the children's area. And if it's your first time here and you're going to make this home and you have children, you'll feel encouraged that they got someone else more qualified. And so that'll work out for you. Um, but in different areas, Uh, we've just been able to focus on kind of the idea of what does the church as it focuses in an individual place of how do we minister in all these different areas. And Stonegate has afforded us the opportunity to focus on those areas and to see how it works. And then also to realize what it feels like to set up chairs every week and tear them back down and set them back up again and need a bunch of people with huge trucks to pull out the trailer and do it all over again. And by the By the grace of God, things don't break as often as they do, you know? And so we've had the question over and over, what exactly are you doing? And so we tell them, we're going to plant a church in Lawrence, Kansas, and we get three main responses. The first response is utter confusion of why you would plant a church anywhere, much less Lawrence, Kansas. And this has never become more evident than when I'm filling out a renter's application and I come to the section and it says this employment. And I've got to take a moment to try to describe who I work for and how they're going to pay me to someone who may or may not go to church and they certainly don't care. And so I can't just say, I work for God. Even though I really want to say I work for Jesus. And then they respond, is he paid once a month or twice a month? I'm like, I just hope he pays, you know? <laughs> and so it's this moment of trying to explain this confusion. Aren't there lots of churches and trying to explain that the plan to expand the kingdom of God has always been through people planting churches. I mean, every church you go by, at some point, someone left somewhere and planted that church. I mean, it might have been there for 250 years, but at some point, God moved in the heart of someone, and someone supported that someone, and they went somewhere that was under church or no church, and they started to proclaim the gospel, and that church started. And so it's always been the plan, but people are confused. The other response we get from people is kind of this patronizing, enduring look. You know, we're like, hey, we're going to plant a church, and they look, well, isn't that just precious? And we're like, no, really, we're gonna plan a church. And we actually, I, encourage, I, I like the patronizing. It's at least encouraging. You know, like, that's so cute. I love it. Isn't that wonderful? But I know what they're really saying when they say, isn't that wonderful? They're saying, can you got, get a real job at a real church? And I'm like, I guess not. I'm gonna start one then, you know? I mean, and so we get that a lot. And then when we are around culture that values church planning, and so we're in places like Stonegate, we're around culture that values church planning. I, I feel like, and this is the honest truth, I, I feel like we get too much credit. I, I feel like we get too much credit. There's too much of an idea of, wow, that's impressive, this incredible step out of faith. And it is way too much credit. And so in studying this, we want to sober this idea of what it is. And actually, when we get too much credit, I think you're, you're thinking, man, it'd probably puff you up. you know? Then you're arrogant, like, look at us. It doesn't puff Kinsey and I up. It scares us. It terrifies us. Kinsey and I are both youngest siblings. And so to understand how that works, you have to understand the way people describe, sociologists describe youngest siblings. And so look at this. The youngest born's characteristic, personality, the youngest children love to be the limelight and are used to sitting in it. They are charming, creative, and had a good sense of humor and manipulate others when they want to get their way. I went ahead and added, I I couldn't believe this is, they're also stunningly handsome. It wasn't in the description. It goes on to say, there might be some professions that fit them well. It says, youngest children often gravitate toward artistic or outdoor jobs. They're also successful in journalism, advertising, sales, and athletics. And since professional athletics did not work out for me, I'm just going with church planning, even though it wasn't in the list. And then it actually had this section on compensation, which was not encouraging. It says, Youngest children are the least likely to report report earnings of six figures or more. And that is no joke. (laughs) But it gets worse. So I'm a youngest child, and Kinsey's a youngest child. And so then it goes on and says, When youngest children marry youngest children, it describes it like this. These two can have a lot of fun. A pair of carefree, risk-taking lovers nearly always do have fun. But the classic conundrum here is that no one wants to be in charge. You may find that neither one wants to handle finances or make other important decisions, a.k.a. this means they're going to be a lot of fun at the party, but both are expecting someone else to pick up the check. <laughs> and this is why it scares us. When, when people are overly impressed, like, wow, that's an incredible amount of faith— We're like, we haven't really thought this thing through. And now when you think it through for us, we're scared. (laughs) And so when I look to Matthew 16, when I look to Matthew 16, there's a promise in here that I have to remind myself and I have to hang on to and I have to preach to my heart over and over and over. And Jesus promises it to the future church. And so, if you're taking notes, we are going to answer two questions and make several statements about them. We're going to first answer this question Who builds the church? Who builds the church? And the answer is Jesus builds his church. The second question is How does Jesus build his church? How does Jesus build his church? And the answer is through unlikely people. And so, look at Matthew 16. And we're going to start in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say I am? Most imp- important question you'll ever answer in your entire life is, Who is Jesus? The most important question, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father who is in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so we are going to focus in on verse 18 to the promise. And so verse 18, look at it again. He renamed Simon Peter to Peter. And he says, your name is no longer Simon. It no longer means the one who hears from God. It now means the rock. And so he changed it. Your name is no longer Simon. You are Peter. And then he says, on this rock. And church history divides right here on what does rock modify You know, some part of the church, it says, it modifies Peter, and they point to the apostolic procession, that it went from one church leader to the other. We don't believe that as a church. We believe that it says, this rock doesn't modify Peter, but modifies the statement, Peter's belief, and this is what it, Peter's belief in verse 16, is that Jesus is the Christ, the promised rescuer. All of history has been pointing to this one moment that God would enter the flesh and he would redeem mankind from everything. The sacrificial system saved no one. It was pointing to a greater reality that God himself would have to die at our place. It was only the incarnate God that could save us from our sin because our sin is that wretched. He says you are the Christ. You are the promised one that all the law and all the prophets and all the Psalms were speaking about. That's you. You are the Christ. And then it goes on, it says, the son of the living God. And so that belief that we have to answer, who is Jesus? He's not a moral teacher. He's not a good example. He's not all these things that might point to a better life. He is God who became man to save us from our wretched, unbelieving hearts jesus and he says on this statement on this belief on this rock look at this promise i will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it and so when we look at this to sober us and to encourage us we see this promise and it just simply says this i will build my church Jesus says, I will build my church. And so who is building the church? Jesus is building not the church, he's building his church. Jesus is building his church. It's an imperative statement where he says, I am the subject, I am doing the building, and the gates of hell cannot overcome it. I will build my church. And so let's look at two scenes to say who is this Jesus? I mean, who is he? The first scene, let's look right here. You have this probably five foot two Galilean, a Nazarite who is there and he is standing before 12 men and he is coming from humble circumstances. I mean, think about the humble circumstance that he came from. I mean, the first thing is he's about 30 years old. And so he's starting his ministry and he is working through his ministry, but he was a carpenter becoming lay preacher. He was born of an engaged teenage girl in humble circumstances, so much that it was known that people accused him of being illegitimate. The Pharisees, when they were frustrated, they said, hey, at least we know who our dad is. You don't know who your dad is. And so he was born in humble circumstances in a place called Nazareth, which is from Nowhereville, that had a reputation of being crude rednecks, I mean, whatever the equivalent to, you know, Palestinian first century rednecks are, was understood for being that, that when Thomas came, he said, who could possibly come good from Nazareth when he found out about Jesus? The town itself probably had 30 to 40 families in it. One well that Jesus probably went with his mother every day, and he was born to a father who was a working class carpenter, and by that, he's a poor working class carpenter. Not very impressive. I mean, with this statement, come on. Yes, miracles have happened. Yes, they had seen Jesus do incredible things. Yes, the teaching had gone out, but they are looking at a 30-year-old man who really doesn't have a classical education, who really doesn't have this huge following. He called 12 nobodies to follow someone who everyone would look at. He's a nobody. It's not an impressive scene. But let's look at the end of time of who this Jesus is. Keep your finger here and flip to Revelations 19. And so this is the second scene that we want to see of Jesus. In Revelations 19, starting in verse 11, listen to the description of the Son of God. This Galilean, this guy who stepped into history, who got 12 men to follow him. And what it means when he says, I will build my church of what it turns into and who is coming back for his church. Look at this. John is writing, and this is what he sees at the end of times. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And righteousness he judges and makes war. That's Jesus. He is known for being faithful and true, and in righteousness he will judge and make war. Look at verse 12. It gets scary. Listen to the scripture. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head he wears many diadems, many crowns. He has his name written that no one knows but himself and he is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. That's kind of commanding. I mean, I don't know. If someone walked in dripped in blood, you might at least notice them. All right, dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, he has an army, so you take him serious. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linens, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which he strikes down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of fury with the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not like some crazy tattoo that you got of a Looney tune because your mom called you Taz. This is King of Kings... And Lord of Lords on his thigh, tattooed in ink, stay in there, hardcore. Verse seventeen: When I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, he called to the birds that fly directly overhead. Listen to what the angel calls. This does not make it into children's stories very often. Come. Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and the riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Okay, we we, we don't cover that much in children's. All right, keep going. And I saw the beast, Satan. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with the false false prophet and in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped him. Listen to what happens to him. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is the Jesus that says, I will build my church. And so it started in humble circumstances, but Jesus speaks. He speaks authoritatively. He says, it's not your church. It's not someone else's church. It doesn't belong to any denomination. It doesn't belong to any specific creed of faith. It belongs to me and I will build my church. And so it starts to build some confidence that Jesus is the architect and he's going to push it through. And what starts with 12 kind of nobody men over here that didn't really have a college education between all of them, it starts with them, ends in great multitudes in Revelation that says no one can number. Amen. And so we're looking at the in-between time. And so we want to ask this question. The question's clear. Who will build a church? And Jesus answers it with a promise. I will build my church But then the next question, how is Jesus building his church? And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump through Acts. And so I want you to go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 in verse 26. And what we'll do is we'll go from Acts chapter 8, we'll jump a little bit to 9, and then we'll end in, in 16. And just looking at these sections, if we want to see how the early church was built, and we want to entertain the idea that the same sort of pattern... The same sort of thing that we saw then is how Jesus is going to continue to orchestrate and build his church. And so the first thing we want to see before we take any credit, before we take too much credit that we might pull from the glory of God, because Jesus says, I will build my church. We want to look at this. Jesus builds his church by arranging evangelism. He sets it up. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it gets to verse 10 and it says, For we have been saved by grace. It's not by works. No one can boast. So we can't boast. And then it says, we have good works that are prepared for us to do in advance. And so look at this. In Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. And so we've got a guy, not even an apostle. We have a convert. His name is Philip. And he is just trying to be obedient to God. And he all of a sudden has this prearranged evangelistic opportunity that comes out. And so starting in verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so when we look at Philip, we just want to ask the question, how did he decide where to go? The Spirit of God led him. I mean, we don't see any like detailed studies going on here. We don't see scholastic studies that are pinpointing demographics and educationally pushing us there. We don't see that. There's nothing wrong with that, but we don't see here ultimately is God pushing We don't see that he started like a woofoo survey to make sure that people were receptive. He doesn't do that. He didn't even start a Facebook interest page so people know he's there in town. He just feels the presence of God saying, I want you to go south. And so he goes south. And look at this in verse 27. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Now right there, I, I don't know how he found out the guy. I can understand how he found out he was an Ethiopian. I don't know how he found out that he was an Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, I don't know if that comes out in introduction. Hey man, I'm Philip. I'm an Ethiopian eunuch. Pleased to meet you. I I don't know how that comes out. But he met this Ethiopian eunuch, and listen, description of him. An important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And so that means even though he was Ethiopian, even though he was from northern Africa, he was a God-fearer. And so he would go to the Jerusalem to worship. And so he's in the Old Covenant. Now listen to this. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship, verse 28. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And so he asked this question. Do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31 the eunuch responds how can i he says unless someone explains it to me could this be an evangelistic opportunity i mean and so it goes on so I mean, what's he reading so maybe it's an evangelistic opportunity look at so he invited philip to come up and sit with him this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53. Look at it. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shears is silent. He did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please. Look at that. He's begging him. He is begging him to save him. Look at it. Tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Look at verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now, just for a second. When Philip's in heaven and he's hanging out with the the Ethiopian eunuch and they're telling this story, is Philip going to be puffed up about that? I mean, is he going to be like, oh man, I came in with this clever evangelistic tool and I got him to the place where he couldn't say anything else so he had to say Jesus and then in his humiliation because I won, he had to say it. No, he's like, I was just hanging out. I was loitering. I was just hanging out loitering, and all of a sudden I felt like God said, go south. And so I just started driving south, and I kind of felt like God said, hey, you're going to meet a guy. And I met this guy, and he was the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was reading Isaiah 53 aloud. And I was like, hey, what are you reading? And he looks at me, and he says this, I don't know, who's he talking about? And I was like, he's talking about Jesus. And if we go on, he says, hey, we should be baptized. So I baptized him. I mean, he's going to give all the praise and glory to Jesus. And he's going to say, Jesus built his church. Jesus orchestrated all of it. He asked me if Jesus was the Savior of the world, and I said yes. I mean, it was a slam dunk. And so when you look at this, you see Jesus is orchestrating his church by arranging evangelism. Guys, when when you pray for us, when you pray for church planners and you pray for Christians and you pray for yourself, we need to pray that God works in the same way that He worked in, that He would orchestrate evangelism, that we would have soft hearts, that when the Spirit of the Lord says, Go south, or in our case, that we feel like He's saying, Go north. That we would say all praise belongs to Jesus. He is orchestrating something and he is coming hard after my heart. And whatever it brings is the vehicle of grace that he has for me. And we need experiences like this or there won't be a church. And so he orchestrates evangelism. The second thing we see out of this passage is Jesus builds his church by sending people to unchurched or underchurched areas. In looking at this passage, it just shows that he was from northern Africa. And one of the, the strongest you know, early churches was out of northern Africa. And although there's no biblical evidence that it started with the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip evangelized, and although there's no first century archaeological strong evidence that says that, all the church fathers claim that the northern African church started because of this experience right here. And just talk about the expansion of the kingdom of God. Let's just consider what came out of the North African church. What came out of the North African church? I just want to propose pro- three guys. Some of them, you've you probably heard of all of them. You've definitely maybe not heard of two of them, but you should have. If you said anything, you should have heard of them. You've definitely heard of one of them. And so the first one, who came out of the North African church that shaped Christianity as we know it? First, origin of Alexandria. Origin of Alexandria, this guy was the first one to say, hey, of all the the letters floating out there that are talking about Jesus, what are the ones that are authoritative that the church is using? And he put the first canon of the New Testament together. So years later, you have the Easter letter that goes out, which gave us the exact canon of the New Testament. And so when you read the New Testament, it was because someone evangelized an area in North Africa, and this guy named Origen came together, and he starts looking at the church, and he says, what are you using that's causing life change? And they said, man, we're using these letters, and they are written by apostles, or first accounts of the apostles. And so he said, well, let's make a list. It's a big deal. He came from North Africa. Who else? Tertullian. He's a big name. He is considered probably the father of Western theolo- the- theology. I mean, that, that's a cool title to go behind your name, right? I'm not considered the father of anything other than the father of three children. I mean, the father of Western theology. But this, this is big. I didn't even know this. Listen. All right, you should be excited. The third one. There's other church fathers, but the third one. Augustine of Hippo. Augustine. If you don't know who Augustine is, you you need to do some reading. All right, Augustine, he is a big deal. He's like the church father of church fathers. He's like the granddaddy of church fathers. He wrote Confessions and the City of God. I mean, these things were what put together the Trinitarian idea for the modern understanding of how do we worship a Trinitarian God. And this all started with God orchestrating evangelism. This started with one guy, according to the church fathers, it just felt like the Spirit of the Lord said, go south. And he came across a guy, and he just said, hey, what are you reading? And the guy said, hey, I'm reading Isaiah. I don't know what he's talking about. Do you know who he's talking about? He said, Man, he's talking about Jesus. And salvation happens, and that guy goes back to northern Africa, and the church starts. And it just starts there because Jesus orchestrates evangelism. Listen to what this commentary writes when, it, when he's talking about the Acts of the Apostle. He writes this, and this is to humble and sober us. He says, For Luke's purpose, however, at least part of the point of this story, the Ethiopian eunuch, is to show that with or without apostles, God was going to fulfill his plan to spread the good news to all flesh, even unto the ends of the earth also known as he's going to plant churches everywhere. God plants churches. God expands the church. Jesus is building the church. It goes on, Even if it requires using an evangelist rather than an apostle, or even if it requires direct divine intervention in various forms, the human leaders of Christianity in Jerusalem could only try to catch up with the plans of God, which were operating often apart from and quite beyond their control. In responding to this passage, it says, listen, there is no doubt that God is moving. Now let's go on. Number three, how does Jesus build the church? Jesus builds his church by calling and quipping unlikely leaders. Flip to Acts chapter 9, and we're just going to kind of talk through this part. But Acts chapter 9, we see Saul before he becomes Paul. And it says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so what does he do? He goes to the high priest and he gets official letters that says, if I find Christians anywhere, not just in Jerusalem, if I find them anywhere, I can arrest him and we'll bring him back and we'll try him right here. And so he is breathing, breathing not just threats, but murder against the church. And so he is leaving Jerusalem and he is on his way to Damascus. And so as he's walking, now just in this moment, in this moment you have saw official letters to arrest you, to beat you, to, in, you know, to take you to somewhere else, to try you, and maybe even to kill you. Would you look at this guy and say, man, he ought to be a home group leader around here. <laughs> maybe we get him in some leadership training. You probably would, but let's keep going. That's because we don't build a church. Jesus builds a church. Verse three, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When you're in a season of suffering, you might come and just underline this: that it says, I am Jesus, and you could paraphrase the others, who suffers with my people. And so then in verse 6, it says he rises into the city and there, do what you're going to be told. And what's happening is Jesus is building his church. And so while he was talking in verse 7, it says the other guys kind of heard what was going on, but they didn't see. All they knew was Saul was blind now and he was scared. And so then we get to verse 9 and this is what happens because he was so scared. It says, and for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Well, Yeah. I mean, he just realized that he accidentally picked a fight with God. So he's not eating or drinking and he's blind. And so it's going to go on in verse 10. And so God is bringing, he's orchestrating all this to happen. He's orchestrating evangelism again. And so look at this in verse 10. Now there was a man, a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him a vision, Ananias... Here I am, Lord, he replied back. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for before old he is praying. And then verse 12, it says, And he is, has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, you, come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saint at Jerusalem, and that he is here with authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. I mean, he is saying, that is an unlikely home group leader. We should look for someone else. God, I don't know if you've done your homework. Maybe you should hear about his reputation. But it goes on, and he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's building his church. He's building his church and he is calling and equipping unlikely leaders that no one else would have picked. And now we get to the fourth thing that we see. And this is a promise that we're hanging on to. How does Jesus build his church? Jesus builds his church by sending groups of saved sinners To plant churches. Look at this. Go to Acts 13. I want you to see this first first core group. This first core group in Philippi that, that we have Paul, who was the unlikely leader who got saved, who realized that Jesus is orchestrating all things to build his church. The unlikely leader. Look at this. And so in Acts 13, This is uh, in verses one through three. We have the church and they are worshiping and they are singing praises to God. And there was probably someone instructing. And all of a sudden it lists these leaders. And so it doesn't list a lot of people. It might not have been the big corporate worship. It might have been home group worship in the home. But they were worshiping God. And all of a sudden the Spirit kind of anoints two guys, Paul and Barnabas, and says, I want you to send them out to plant churches. And so we see this. And so if you look at verse 3, it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. And so they were in one church, and God moved them to go to another place to start another church. Listen to how John Piper describes this moment. He describes, in responding to Acts 13, he says, This changed the course of history. It is almost impossible to overstate the historical importance of this moment in Antioch in the history of the world. Before this word from the Holy Spirit, there seems to have been no organized mission of the church beyond the eastern seacoast of the Mediterranean. Before this... Paul had made no missionary journeys westward to Asia Minor, Greece or Rome or Spain. Before this, Paul had not written any of his letters, which were all the result of his missionary travels beginning here. This moment resulted in the missions movement that would make Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries and would yield 1.3 billion adherents to the Christian religion today with a Christian witness in virtually every country of the world. This moment, the, the Holy Spirit of God working to equip unlikely leaders because he's going to build his church, setting two guys apart in one church and sending them out. Look at that, and we're like, we are so glad they fasted and prayed and sent someone out. And so we see this incredible And So the first, it starts with Paul and Barnabas, and they go out. Look in Acts 16. In Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, we see this, and I'll read it. It says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him. Now, just a little historical context. So the next person to be added to this core group was Timothy. But Timothy is described as a young man, most likely a teenager. If you come to me and you say, hey, we want to send someone with you to plant a church, take our teenage son, I'm going to say, no thanks. And so the original core group, I mean, you've got Paul and Barnabas. Those are heavy hitters now. But they said, hey, take our teenage son. And so he took him. I mean, he was somewhat impressive. He was an impressive guy, but he was an impressive teenager. And so, you know, he took him. I mean, there's just probably, I mean, you could imagine his voice was probably still cracking when he got excited. I mean, they'd probably be like traveling and some revelation came and you'd be like, hey, 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 Paul. You know, I mean, it probably... I mean, probably still cracking. He can't run to the store. He probably can't even buy you cigarettes at the store or even drive the donkey. I mean, he's a teenager. And so we, we see that they added a Timothy, the teenager, impressive teenager. But then look at this. In Acts 16, it goes on. Look at verse 14. And so he gets to Philippi, and he does what he always does. He kind of, he walks into an area And he goes to kind of the chief city of that area that kind of controls the region. And so he walks into Philippi and he just starts preaching Jesus. And the first convert in Philippi is Lydia, a businesswoman who sold purple purple fabric. But listen, in verse 14 it says, Peter is preaching and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what he was saying. And Peter's not going to take much credit for that. If the Holy Spirit of God, if Jesus doesn't open people's hearts to pay attention, if he doesn't quake in their spirit and make them alive, no one is saved. No churches are started. And so we see Paul and Barnabas, they now have Timothy the teenager, and now they have a successful businesswoman, and every church plant needs money, and so they are excited, and so they have a successful businesswoman. And then they get this. Look in verse 18. And so what happens between verse 14 and 18 is a demon-possessed girl starts heckling them and walks around and heckles them and heckles them and heckles them. And, heckles them. and they're thinking, we can't get rid of this girl. And so Peter or, or Paul turns around and he says to her, you know, come out in the name of Jesus. And in verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the demon came out that very hour and she joined the team. I mean, can you imagine the core group sitting around, maybe having launch Sunday? Hey, how do you guys know each other? It was demon-possessed. Okay, you want to take care of the children's area? Yeah. (laughs) And so we don't even know her name. She's not mentioned by name. We'll just call her Emily Rose. Movie reference, exorcism, Emily Rose, go and see it. Okay, and so we'll just call her Emily Rose. And so now we have Paul and Barnabas, the head guys. We have Timothy, the teenager. We have Lydia, the successful businesswoman. And now we have a demon-possessed girl. We're calling her Emily Rose. And then we have their jailer. Look in verse 25. So because they cast a demon out of this girl, that got them a one-way ticket into jail. And so they are in jail and they decide to have a little worship conference and they start singing praises to God because they count them blessed because they are suffering for the kingdom's sake. And they are in jail singing and God sends a huge earthquake and it opens all the jail doors and they keep singing. The jailer wakes up and he runs to the jail. He doesn't see the inmates and he's like, I'm a dead man. He pulls his sword out to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't kill yourself. Join our small group. <laughs> and look at what happens. It says, it, you know, he says in verse 28, I mean, I paraphrase that. It says, but Paul cried in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are here. They didn't run free. Verse 29, and the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, which is not like flip on the lights. You got to like find matches, start the lights. And so, and they rushed in. And the jailer, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he said this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this is what he says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your whole household. And he joined the home group. Now listen, this is not just a jailer. This is their jailer. I mean, this is an incredible, God is pulling unlikely people, and he is starting a church. And, no, and just ask this question. I mean, I know you're excited about it, but in practicality, when you're thinking about this, and so you're looking at all the things that have to happen in a church plan, all of a sudden you say, okay, who's going to be in charge of the children's area? Let's go down the list. It's not going to be Paul or Barnabas. I mean, that's like the lead guy and the financial guy. And I know from experience, they don't run the children's area. All right, so it's not going to be them. How about Emily Rose, the demon-possessed girl? I mean, is that going to ensure confidence for new families? So, wait, how'd you get here? I was possessed. Okay, probably not. How about the jailer? I mean, could you imagine when they're saying, hey, what are you going to do with the the rowdy kids? When they have behavior problems, he's like, well, I've got a few ideas. (laughs) We could shackle them. We could put them in a metal box, too short to stand up, too you know, narrow to lay down, put it out in the hot Middle Eastern sun. That'll correct the behavior problems. I mean, that might not ensure retention with your young families. And so maybe not the jailer. And so then you're like, well, how about Timothy? He's a talented kid. Listen, it's a rule of thumb. If you don't trust someone with a potato gun, you cannot put them in charge of the children's area. And so then you're like, Lydia. Of course, Lydia. She's a woman, maternal instincts. She's successful. I mean, think about it. She's, She's going to organize. She knows how to make a profit. She's going to train. She's going to execute all those things until she comes to you and says, hey, I think this Sunday school thing is kind of a waste of time. I know what these kids could do. I've got this little sweatshop over here where they could get a job, and employment. We'll talk about Jesus, why they work. I mean, there is no clear person to run the children's area. And God starts a powerful movement in Philippi. Powerful movement in Philippi. You know, most, most commentaries argue that the Philippian church was Paul's favorite church. And we look at what God said, He sent a, a group of saved sinners to, to plant a church. I don't think they took a lot of credit. And so just kind of in closing, we say how how does Jesus build his church? he gathers together unlikely sinners whom he justifies and sanctifies and he promises to glorify them, to build the multitudes for the wedding feast at the end of time. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Amen. Let's pray. With your heads down, And just being really, really still. I want to remind you where we are in history. Before we just pray with celebrations of a sovereign God who works all this through, I just want I want to remind you of where we are in history. You see, the Bible describes the church, his church that he's building as his bride. And at the end of times, at the wedding feast, when we gather together and there is a wedding and we are made beautiful because Jesus has promised to make us beautiful. You see, Jesus loves his church. He calls us his bride and one day is coming, he's coming back for her. He promises that she will be beautiful and radiant. Because right now he is washing her in his word and will one day present her in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She will have no blemish and no defect because he promises it in Ephesians 5. He's cleansing her. And then we see in Revelations that there will be a celebration of everything Jesus did at this wedding feast where there is a consummation and the betrothed or engaged bride is married. We're in an engagement period. And the engagement period is not the end. It's a period of excitement and frustration that there is a day coming when everything comes together. It's a period that it's not fully here, but it's sort of here that we're looking toward our, our, our spouse and we're excited about what's coming. We're engaged. And he is making us beautiful during this engagement period. And he is building his church. He's doing it by arranging opportunities. For, for you, for, for me, he's arranging opportunities for us to share our faith that we'll take no credit for in eternity because he orchestrated it. He's doing that by, by calling and equipping unlikely leaders. I mean, just... Think about this. What did Paul do to add to his salvation? What did he do to add to his calling to be a leader? He made it harder. And God calls and equips and he's sending groups of saved sinners to unchurched and underchurched areas. Unlikely people who the only thing that binds them, the only thing that they can really celebrate is they have Jesus they have Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. Jesus builds his church. And we live in a moment that we can be a part of it. It's humbling. Not by works, so no man will boast, it's by grace. God, Lord, we love you, and we just really, really need you. And Lord, I pray that that would sink in. Lord, there would be a relief in knowing that you promised to build your church. That it's your church, Lord, that we can participate individually, we can participate corporately. That we can be a place that plants churches, and we can push the, be a part of pushing the kingdom of God forward. Not because we deserve it, not because we're merited, not because we're talented because we were rebellious. You make a promise that the gates of hell will not overcome it. And that means the bars of hell that bound our heart away from you, you break through and you invite us in. And Lord, that means there are some of us here who still have bars on our heart and we need to be just like Peter. That's who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, whom all our hopes go in. On that rock, I build the church. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.